0: We will have a test, track and trace operation uh, that will be world-beating. We must have a world-beating system. Uh, If you look at what we're doing, actually, I think it certainly is. And it certainly does fit that description as as world-beating. Our track and trace system will be world-beating. The development of the Oxford Covid-19 vaccine is months ahead of its competitors around the world. This is how politicians and the media have been talking about our lines of defence against the coronavirus pandemic. But when facing up to a global problem that connects us all, why is competition the only language we have to talk about it? Two of the world's front-runners to develop a vaccine are right here in the UK. We are now testing uh, more per head of, of population than virtually any other country in Europe. And here I'm delighted to say that Britain continues to lead the world. How has competition come to define our economy and society? What do we miss out on when we focus on competition? And is there a way out? In this episode of the Weekly Economics Podcast, we're asking, is competition killing us? I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith, recording this podcast from my house. Stay with us. So this week, I'm really excited to be joined down the line by Michelle Ma, Senior Policy Fellow at the Centre for Law, Economics and Society at UCL, and the author of the new book, Competition is Killing Us, How Big Business is Harming Our Society and the Planet. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Aisha. Thanks so much for being with us, and we're also joined by Grace Blakely, staff writer at Tribune and author of *Stolen: How to Save the World from Financialization* and her upcoming book *The Corona Crash: How the Pandemic Will Change Capitalism*. Hi, Grace.
1: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: Thanks for being here. So we're we're going to dive in and start by kind of laying some of the groundwork. So we're going to be talking a lot about competition and free markets in this conversation, but it's probably useful to unpack what we mean by that. So, Michelle, what are free markets? Um, and why do some economists think that they're the best way to run an economy?
1: So, I mean, it's interesting because I think we have the language of free markets and competition all around us. But actually, you know, as a competition lawyer, somebody who's really spent my whole life thinking about competition, when I came to write my book, uh, Competition is Killing Us, and to actually define competition and define free markets, it was actually really hard to find a good definition. It turns out that we don't have an agreed idea of what those mean. And it also turns out that that's a lot of the reason um, why there's a lot of confusion around this so I think of free markets as markets that are generally more deregulated or have less kind of regulatory oversight some people think of free market capitalism as the kind of other end of the spectrum to socialism or communism but actually if you look at um, the markets in the UK. We have, you know, predominantly free markets in the sense that anybody can enter the market and start a business. And we have principles of entrepreneurialism and the idea that it's really markets that drive the economy. But we also do have a regulatory state that is supposed to be overseeing that. So when I talk about free markets, I'm not necessarily talking about you know, no regulation at all. And, um, you know, I don't think that really exists in the real world. But we are talking about a kind of mindset, I suppose, where um, in general, the market is left to its own devices.
0: And why do people think that competition is important in free markets? What role does competition play?
1: So the idea, if you go back to, I suppose, the um, kind of basic economic theory, is that when companies are out there competing, they're going to end up producing the best possible products and the most output for the lowest price. Because if they um, were to produce something that wasn't desired by the market, then there'd be another company that would come in and um, undercut them or do something a bit better, come out with a better, more innovative product. And so the idea is you just let this system run and eventually all of the things that we want as consumers but also as a society will be fulfilled. So if you've got a company that's out there stealing your data and you know violating your privacy, then if people don't like that, then another company will come along that provides you with those services without uh, stealing your data and violating your privacy. So there's this idea that the market is self-correcting. It will sort out all the problems that would otherwise need some kind of political intervention which is what's so magical about um, what's called the invisible hand of the free market, that just without doing anything, we magically get the best possible outcome um, out of the resources that we have.
0: Okay, that sounds nice and highly uh, unrealistic. So, Michelle, you have also talked about the dangers of shareholder capitalism. Can you explain what that is within the context of everything that you just laid out?
1: So shareholder capitalism is this idea which has really been baked into the law around companies and the way that businesses operate. And it rests on this particular principle, which basically says that the primary responsibility of directors of a company is to maximize shareholder value or maximize financial returns for shareholders. Now, you know, if you kind of operate in the world and um, and you know interact with companies, you might not be so surprised to think that companies are operating you know for their shareholders. But if you take a step back and think about how many different people invest in a company, whether it's the workers or um, you know the communities that are located around a particular company's operations or um, suppliers, it's actually quite a remarkable thing to say that the only thing that the a company should be doing is to maximise profits for shareholders and this. This was an idea that was put forward by an economist called Milton Friedman um, 50 years ago, almost to the day. And he had this article in the New York Times magazine, which said that not just the financial responsibility, but the social responsibility is to maximize profits. Because again, kind of going back to that invisible hand um, free market idea, it's basically around this um, principle that business should just focus on making as much money as possible Good things will happen because we'll get all the wonderful goods and services that come out of that. And then we can deal with the problems of distribution of wealth later. Now, I think, you know, it's quite well documented, especially in the last decade, that that distribution piece has not happened. And it also um, is quite well documented that in. That single-minded profit focus, companies have done all sorts of things that are socially harmful. So it turns out that that kind of uh, quite utopian idea that all business needs to do is focus on profits isn't really doing um, very much good for the rest of us.
0: OK, that makes sense. Thank you for that comprehensive walkthrough. Grace, I want to bring you in and ask, so in everything that Michelle's laid out about the role of competition and shareholder capitalism and free markets, what do you reckon the role of government is in all of this or should be in a, in a free market system?
2: Yeah. So um, what is interesting about this particular moment in time and arguably government policy and the policy of central banks over the last decade or so has been that a lot of their actions have served to, reinforce the trend towards market concentration rather than to upset it what is going on at the moment in the pandemic I think provides quite an interesting insight into the way in which the kind of crises generated by the kind of unstable financialized and monopolized system that we have at the moment also tend to reinforce those trends towards concentration because obviously you've got um, governments at the moment pledging billions of pounds, billions of dollars, billions of euros to businesses. Some kind of grants and tax breaks to small businesses, but a lot of that money is going to very, very large corporations. And there are some really just fascinating and horrifying examples of this, like, for example, EasyJet getting a uh, £600 million loan from the Bank of England only to go on and give out a massive payout to its shareholders uh, not long after that. So, Government's kind of provided loans, which are kind of being used by lots of big businesses, even at the same time as small businesses, some of which are getting access to loans, but some of which aren't, are facing huge pressures that mean that a lot of them are going to go under. Some large businesses, particularly in the tech sector and health, are actually seeing kind of an increase in revenues and a dramatic increase in profits at a time when many other businesses are like failing or or looking like they're about to go under. And it really comes down to the different ways in which different kinds of businesses can access and then use credit. So the fact that we have very cheap and very easy credit at the moment is something that you know has been done on like egalitarian grounds having low interest rates and having quantitative easing was supposed to be something that was about boosting the economy for everyone instead it's meant that individuals that already have assets and big companies that find it very easy to borrow on financial markets already and to get access to credit already have just been able to take on much much more of that debt and use it often for not particularly productive purposes and using a lot of it actually, for mergers and acquisitions activity. And um, we've seen a lot of that recently. And now you look from, you know, industry to industry to industry and you see all these mega mergers that have gone through that have led to huge levels of concentration in certain sectors. And again, you know, that is something that is facilitated by the kind of the logic of, of financialization that we've seen in the economy recently as well. So, yeah, there are kind of all these complex interlinked ways in which um, states, And and central banks kind of support these trends. In terms of how we can think about upsetting them, Michelle obviously puts forward a a load of really interesting kind of institutional changes and and reconfigurations that I think are are really, really important um, and worth looking at. I also think, you know, when I think back to kind of my work and and what I've written about this, we also do need to look at the role of the finance sector um, and actually of kind of central banks in facilitating um, these trends because, you know, the whole ideology of shareholder value has generated massive returns for investors and for other participants in in financial markets, many of which are financial institutions themselves. And one of the things that we could think about doing, you know, just like now, the government has given all these small businesses these loans um, through the coronavirus business interruption loan scheme or the bounce back loan scheme in the UK. And the banks administering those loans have said that between 40 to 50% of the businesses receiving them are probably going to default. The government could do something very quick and you know worthwhile, which is convert those loans into equity, have a stake in these small businesses, allow them to grow and thrive and drive forward the recovery at the same time as it's imposing more stringent conditions on those big businesses that are receiving government funding around corporate governance, around environmental responsibility, to I suppose, level the playing field a little bit more. Because if we don't do anything, what we're going to see in the wake of this crisis is just an exacerbation of those trends of monopolisation and financialization that were seen before.
0: Mm. Thanks so much, Grace. It's great to start kind of mapping some of those solutions. I want to talk more about that later as well towards the end of the chat. But Michelle, I wanted to touch on uh, something you mentioned earlier about your background as a corporate lawyer. So in your book, you write about how you were once a big believer in free markets, but then you change your mind. So could you tell us a little bit about how that happened?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think it links quite nicely to some of what Grace has just been talking about. So, you know, I was working as a competition lawyer in the city. And that means that I was there advising companies, um, mostly on how to get their mergers approved by the competition authorities. So exactly those trends that um, Grace was just describing around real kind of merger waves where financialized companies Essentially, kind of look at the market around them. And if they think, okay, I can't grow internally, and how am I going to deliver that promise of shareholder value and financial returns to my shareholders? Well, one kind of quick and dirty way to do that is to just go out and buy everybody else that you can in the market. And so, um, I really thought I was kind of working, I suppose, in a system that was meant to be preserving competition. So that beautiful story about um, free market competition that I described at the beginning, this regulatory system is meant to preserve that. It's meant to you know, only allow the mergers to go through that would actually be beneficial to consumers. And so the whole idea is that as long as prices stay low for consumers, that will be our test as to whether we should let a merger go through. I had a real um, light bulb moment when I was working on one deal in particular. Um, so that was the deal between BritVic, the fizzy drink company that makes Tango and um, a company called AG Bar, which is the uh, company that makes Iron Brew. And I just kind of had a, a moment of realization where I understood that you know, it can't possibly be true that we want fizzy drinks to be as cheap as possible. And is that really the only thing we're going to look at? I started to question the role of competition in the economy me and um, started to see that actually free markets aren't that competitive, which is exactly what uh, Grace has been describing, how we've had kind of growing concentration throughout different sectors. Like if you take Just Save, the food supply chain. And you look at how there are millions of farmers and there are millions of customers like us who are eating food. But in between those, you've got these middlemen. So a huge amount of consolidation um, amongst grain trading. There's, I think, four companies that control 90% of the global market for grain trading. You've got four companies that control almost all of the agrochemicals and the inputs that farmers use. And in the UK, the magic number four again, um, we've got four, all companies that control 70% of UK groceries and you can see companies like Amazon trying to get into that market um, with their acquisition of Whole Foods and When we're looking at some of those acquisitions, I was really struck by the things that count and the things that matter and the things that don't seem to matter at all. So if a company merges and they say that they're going to, you know, it's all kind of dressed up in all of these euphemisms. So they are going to produce synergies. That means they're going to cut costs. That could mean that they're going to lay off a whole bunch of their workers. On our kind of regulatory system, that would be really great because it means that the prices might be lower for consumers. But as I started to look into it, I started to kind of understand more, if you tie together these two ideas of low prices for consumers, but also um, high uh, shareholder value and and dividends for shareholders, that actually, if a company is going to sack a whole bunch of workers and suddenly save a load of costs, those savings are probably going to go to the shareholders. And I suppose it's a bit of an open secret within that regulatory system. And I started to really question my role in it, um, which is why I, I left my job in the city um, to go really look at these problems more holistically and think about, you know, how could we actually challenge um, some of the outcomes of that? So, you know, one of the outcomes has been the domination of our markets by fewer and fewer companies. And when we look at the power that those companies have, you know, that could be power over their suppliers, it could be power of their workers, it includes power over their customers. and, And, you know, as consumers, if you think of, you know, big tech as a really good example where we're really in that kind of power relationship, we don't really have very much choice. And that comes from there really being only one major social media player and only one online e-commerce store that basically sells everything. So I think it's really was a journey for me in understanding that many of our economic policies take this idea of free market competition as a given. So we, they start from the idea that competition works. And when you really dig into it, it's clear that not only are, are our markets not very competitive. But there are so many imperfections in the market, which mean that actually companies can entrench their power, they can leverage their power, um, so they can take economic power that they gain in the market, and then they can use that as political power to um, lobby or to control the regulation that they're subject to. But I think the major point really is that the whole system is really designed in service of that open secret. So, you know, companies go to the regulators, they tell the story that they know that they have to they are advised by people who are actually probably you know think that they're doing a good job defending these companies and then you've got the regulators you know acting really earnestly to um you know review very seriously are prices going to go up or not but ultimately it's a fraud because the whole system is kind of working against the public interest and not taking into account even you know just as consumers the things that really matter to us
0: Thanks, Michelle. So just to stick with monopolies for a little bit longer, what I'm still a bit unclear on is, you know, we've laid out free market capitalism and the monopolies that kind of flow from it. Within them, there's both not enough competition and too much competition. There's these big mergers that you've talked about, which are often not actually the most strategic or effective. And then there's also this idea that, we might be able to challenge monopolies by encouraging more competition. So, yeah, I guess the question is, is there a kind of silver bullet to breaking these monopolies and and is it tied to competition?
1: I think that the main thing is, in a way, that we tie ourselves up in knots talking about competition. So... This idea of competition really comes from um, this neoliberal thinking that came out of the Chicago School of Economics in the 50s, 60s, 70s in the US. And it made competition, you know, the be-all and end-all. You couldn't really talk about a lot of this area of economic policy without talking about competition. And what I think is really missing um, from that conversation is power. If you start talking about power, then a lot of these things that seem to be paradoxes suddenly melt away. So you talked about one paradox, the idea that we've got too little competition to challenge these unaccountable monopolies. But on the other hand, we've got too much competition, which is causing all of these harms because companies are cutting corners, etc. If we look at it from a power perspective, then really what matters is who has power to inflict those harms, who has power um, over which um, other actors in the market. So suddenly the answers become quite clear. Yes, we need Kind of more competition to challenge monopolies, but it's not just blanket competition. It's not good enough just to you know break up one company and assume that that will sort itself out. that we can sit back again and let the invisible hand do its work. Instead, we need to be looking at empowering um, those who are currently disempowered. Look at workers. Look at um, smaller businesses. You know, should they be operating more cooperatively? currently a lot of cooperative business is illegal under competition law because we assume that it's bad for consumers but as we said before we're not just consumers we are also you know workers and entrepreneurs and and so on um yeah i'd be very curious to know what grace has to say on that as well
0: yeah grace monopolies what do you think you literally took the words right out of my mouth I was literally about to say, well, all of those
2: things could be subsumed if you thought about it from the perspective of power. Yeah. And I mean, this is what I really liked about Michelle's book as well, is that she really foregrounds this idea of power in her understanding of what's going on here. Because I mean, really, if you think about the difference between neoclassical economics and Marxist or post-Keynesian or institutional or feminist or whatever economics, neoclassical economics stands out by its outright refusal to discuss anything to do with power whether that is class power whether that's forms of oppression that stem from you know different kinds of exercises of power by men by you know white folk etc whether that is the power that resides in institutions to kind of make and shape markets and the decisions that take place within them so yeah I I mean I think that this is equally absent from the mainstream uh, neoclassical discussion of monopoly because obviously Adam Michelle lays this out in her book, the shift that took place in thinking from the kind of Keynesian to the neoliberal era was really around whether or not market power actually matters and is something that we should be concerned about. And obviously, the neoliberals say we don't need to be concerned about market power. All that matters is price. Another book that came out recently on competition was Thomas Philippon's The Great Reversal, which basically looks at why American markets have become so concentrated and so uncompetitive and contrasts that with Europe. And he basically says, look at the price of different things. So look at the price of a phone contract or utility bill in Europe versus America. But obviously, you know, there is still quite a lot of market power in Europe. What Michelle was just talking about there when it comes to agrochemicals, for example, there was that huge merger that was approved recently between Bayer and Monsanto, which I struggle to see on Like how that could have been approved on any grounds, like when you're thinking about efficiency, whether you're thinking about price, whether you're thinking about the environment, right? And you know, it wasn't even a good idea at the time because Bayer took on this company, Monsanto, that was in the middle of being sued for using this chemical that ended up, you know, giving a bunch of people cancer, right? Which is another thing that you often get when you get these huge, massive monopolies. It's just a level of um, unaccountability and collusion, basically, and often corruption that actually sometimes ends up in, in big scandals like that. So, yeah, I mean, the idea that, you know, Europe is brilliant because it has good competition law and prices are slightly lower in some industries than America is, I think, wrong. And when you look at this from the perspective of market power, I think, you know, you can actually start to see perhaps some of the differences between the US and Europe a little bit more clearly, because what parts of Europe do have in a kind of more strong and rigorous way than the US is, for example, stronger labour unions, particularly in certain areas of Northern Europe, much stronger rules around corporate governance. So obviously, in Germany, you famously have workers on boards. And again, that comes back to the strength of the labour movement in some of these countries. Um, And you just have states that are more willing and able to intervene to regulate companies, whether that's, you know, to make sure that they're protecting the environment or or supporting workers' rights. Now, that's obviously not to say that these states are perfect and that Europe is perfect, because obviously it's not. But um, yeah, I mean, I basically do think it comes down to power and institutions.
0: Mm. So I want to just kind of get us into a real world example for a second before we kind of move on to talking about the pandemic, because of course, we need to do that. So, Michelle, this week, a judge found Uber fit and proper to operate in London after its application for a license fee was previously rejected. I know that you know that you've written that competition law could prevent Uber drivers from unionizing. So what does all this mean? Can you explain how this works and the significance of that ruling?
1: Yeah, so it it was a really, um, in a way, it wasn't hugely surprising that after TFL had refused Uber's um, license in London twice for finding that they didn't take seriously concerns over customer safety, they potentially hid um, some fraudulent behavior that was going on amongst drivers. The Westminster Magistrates Court on Monday decided that actually Uber is fit and proper, uh, which is the standard for holding a a taxi license and should therefore have another license for eight. 18 months, which is, you know, I think Uber would say this is a great success, and this is a real victory for them, and I want to move on from it. But actually, 18 months is a lot shorter um, of a license than a company might normally expect. What the court's really saying is, you know, this is a trial period, we're going to be watching you. And I think a bigger point here is that you've got a company like Uber, I think it's a really good example of how kind of this idea of competition can really go awry. So, Uber comes onto the scene with this snazzy app and um, everyone's using it. And it seems like uh, the rides are really cheap. It seems to be safe and they seem to be competing. You know, they are competing with black cab drivers or they're competing with Halo and other apps, but the point is that they're not really competing on a level playing field at all. They have never posted a profit, but have hundreds of millions in VC capital that is allowing them to essentially steamroll through regulation all over the world. And so, you know, what's happened in London is a microcosm of what is going on all over the world in different jurisdictions. So all of these little regulators are having to take on this enormous company with enormous resources. And you touched upon the related issue, which is around the employment rights um, of their drivers, which is an issue that the UK Supreme Court is going to rule on in the next few weeks to determine are Uber drivers employees or not. And if we look at the tactics, the kind of bullying tactics that a company like Uber uses, the same question is live in their biggest market in America, in California, where uh, a judge and the the legislatures have passed laws to say that these drivers are, in fact, workers, which obviously has huge implications for um, Uber in terms of the costs of its uh, business model. Um, Meanwhile, what does Uber do? They write their own law and they get enough people to sign a petition so that that law will actually be presented as a ballot proposition alongside the um, presidential election ballot. And now if you are in California and want to get an Uber, you have to click a button that says I will vote yes to this law becoming the law in California. And you have to click that button before you're even allowed to hire an Uber and get your ride. So we're talking about companies that just have a different level of resources and access to ways to shape the world around them. Whilst we've got an Uber in the market, it's quite hard to imagine that any more responsible and more socially minded company would ever come about, because they can't possibly compete with the Ubers of the world. So I think it's quite a good example to show that sometimes competition, it feels like it's working in our favor. But then when companies get so big, um, they can start out with a good product, and then suddenly they control the market. And there's not really much else that even regulators are able to do about it.
0: Mm, that's a really great example thanks so much michelle um so great so i want to come to you for the final question which is basically what effect has the pandemic had on all of this that we're talking about competition law and the other things that we've discussed i know you've got a new book coming out called the corona crash talking about how the pandemic could tip us into a new era of monopoly capitalism so could you tell us how and, and what we can expect from the book
2: yeah the corona crash um is going to be out on the 27th of october And I basically look at the kind of shift from the hyper financialized form of capitalism that really saw its heyday in the period before the financial crisis, through the years of stagnation, what you know some economists have referred to as secular stagnation. We've seen since then, and the changes that we might see, we're we're already seeing as a result of the pandemic. I think what is interesting to me is the way in which crisis and consolidation centralization monopolization often go hand in hand and that's obviously mainly for two reasons the first is around um the kind of structural power of big businesses so obviously if you've got low margins poor access to credit not access to a large and pretty resilient market, you're going to find it much harder to survive a crisis of the scale that we're living through now. Whereas if you're a huge company, not only are you more likely to see your revenues hold up, you're also much better able to get access to financing arrangements with your creditors. And you know, you're know you generally going to be much more likely to be able to survive and perhaps even thrive during moments of crisis. Then obviously, in the wake of those crises, the fact that you are better able to access credit, whether that's from, you know, banks or, or market financing means that you can then kind of buy up the like scraps that are left over from all these small businesses having collapsed. So, you know, crises are often real moments of consolidation in markets. The trouble is, is that once you get to a certain stage and also once you get to a certain level of links between big business and big finance, there are businesses that are kind of beyond the realm of destruction. And even those are threatened, and this is the second point, end up getting bailed out by the state, right? Because not only do you have these really strong links between um, big business and big finance, you also have the state there supporting the whole thing. So, yeah, I mean, obviously, bigger businesses that are able to lobby governments are much better able to access these financing schemes. The thing I didn't say about EasyJet earlier is that six months before it got that bailout, its CEO was in a meeting with Grant Shapps, the then transport secretary, telling the British government that it couldn't introduce any taxes on uh, short-haul flights because it would ruin its business model. So these are the kinds of, you know, companies when you get a certain level of power. And again, power can look differently depending on what perspective you're looking at it from. If you're just looking at it from the perspective of market power, that's one thing. But you know, big companies can also have political power. They obviously have power in the societies and communities in which they operate. They have power to shape the trajectory of, you know, our planet, basically. So yeah, I think these two things, the links between big business and big finance and the links between big business and the state are really kind of playing out quite strongly during this crisis. And basically, what I think is that if we don't use this moment to reform the way that the system works, we will just see a massive trend towards consolidation in markets, because of that trend towards monopolization, because of the growth of market power, because of the dispersion that we're seeing between very, very big, powerful companies and the rest. But so we will also end up seeing partly as a result of that partly as a result of other deeper longer standing trends just continuous increases in inequality continuous increases in income inequality and in wealth inequality we haven't talked yet about um the impact of big businesses largely headquartered in the global north have on the countries where they you know euphemistically term their foreign direct investment often that can kind of reinforce relations of kind of imperialism and extraction that make the global south much, much worse off. I mean, Michelle was talking earlier about seeds and agricultural firms. That's another really important thing for the global south. And obviously, there are states all over the global south right now that are struggling with a debt crisis that could see many countries basically pushed into or to the brink of bankruptcy. So we have all these trends that if left unchecked, could lead to massive increases in wealth and income inequality in the global north and in international equality and inequality between countries as well as you know just kind of stifling innovation and feeding into that trend of stagnation really that we've seen in the period since the financial crisis but you know the good thing is is I think as Michelle has written and has spoken about in her book there's stuff we can do about it and as I write in my book there's stuff that we can do to tackle all of these problems simultaneously and mainly to get to the core of the issue, which is actually trying to rebalance power between capital and labour whilst kind of, you know, decarbonizing and making the planet safe for the future to ensure we don't get crises like this all the time. So, you know, the thing that I say at the end of the book is, well, we need a global Green New Deal to kind of deliver some of these changes. So that means if big businesses aren't going to undertake the investment that we need to save the planet, then the state needs to fund it. Some of these businesses that are, you know, some of the most powerful monopolies exist in industries where the operation of those businesses should be socialized. So because they're natural monopolies, for example. Um, So I think, you know, we need to see a much greater socialization as well.
0: Yeah, so lots to be done then. But sadly, that is all we've got time for this week. Michelle Ma, thanks so much for joining me. If people want to find out more about your work, where can they go? What should they read?
1: Um, they can um read my book uh, competition is killing us which was released a couple of weeks ago and that should be in all good bookstores please don't buy it on amazon support your local bookstore um and they can find me on twitter um, at mishma m-i-c-h-m-e-a-g-h-e-r and thank you so much Aisha for having me on and it's been a great conversation Grace as well
0: no worries thank you for coming and Grace Blakely thanks to you too if people want to find out more about your work where can they go what should they read
2: Um, So yeah, The Corona Crash is out on the 27th of October. I've also got another book out, an edited collection called Futures of Socialism, which will be out in October as well. And you
0: can follow me on Twitter at Grace Blakely. Fab. That is it for today's Weekly Economics podcast. But we'll be back next week. And if you've enjoyed this episode, as always, please tell someone about it. And you can drop us a line with your comments and questions. We're at NEF on Twitter. The Weekly Economics podcast is brought to you by the New Economics Foundation. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. Stay safe.